You're listening to Martin Wolf's podcast from the Financial Times. The whole point of the story of the boy who cried wolf is that finally a wolf did appear. I feel much the same way about the intellectual heirs of Thomas Malthus. Malthusians have finally found a wolf called climate change. Many now agree, but the wolf is far away and coming slowly. If the worst comes to the worst, mutter the rich to themselves, we can always let our children cope. This is the complacency that the latest Human Development Report from the United Nations Development Programme attacks. It does rather a good job, too. But does it do a good enough job to turn the Bali Climate Change Conference into a call for effective action? I fear not. This is not because it fails to make a morally sound case. It is rather because humanity will change its behaviour only when convinced that the lifestyle the better off enjoy now and the rest of the world aspires to remains within reach. This cynical view of human behaviour is fully consistent with what has happened so far, for it is as if the Kyoto Treaty had never been. Is this judgment too harsh? Consider just a few of the many facts contained in this report. Atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide continue to rise at a rate of 1.9 parts per million a year. Over the past 10 years, the annual growth rate of emissions has been 30% faster than the average for the past 40 years. If the rate of emission were to rise in line with current trends, stocks of CO2 in the atmosphere might be double pre-industrial levels by 2035. And that, argues the International Panel on Climate Change, would give a likely temperature increase of 3 degrees centigrade, though rises of over 4.5 degrees centigrade cannot be excluded. If the science is right, the world is doomed already to significant climate change. The report takes a temperature increase of 2 degrees centigrade as the threshold of what it calls dangerous climate change. Achieving that means draconian cuts in emissions. To quote, If the world were a single country, it would have to cut emissions of greenhouse gases by half by 2050 relative to 1990 levels. However, the world is not a single country. Using plausible assumptions, we estimate that avoiding dangerous climate change will require rich countries to cut emissions by at least 80%, with cuts of 30% by 2020. Emissions from developing countries would peak around 2020, with cuts of 20% by 2050. The one point in favour of George W. Bush's US or John Howard's Australia is that they were not hypocritical. For the signal feature of most of the commitments made so far has been the failure to meet them. The vaunted European emissions trading system has been more a way of transferring quota rent to a few big emitters than an effective means of emissions control. The UK government has, for example, been honest enough to admit that large electricity generators gained £1.2 billion in quota rent for 2005 alone. Can the world do better in future? Yes, but it will find it very hard to do. If we are to understand why, we must confront the fact that the world is very far from a single country. This creates three huge problems. Collective inaction, perceived injustice, and sheer indifference. 
First, not only does each country want to be a free rider on the efforts of others, but none feels wholly responsible for the outcome. Second, the contributions made by different countries to the problem have been and remain enormously different. Collectively, the rich countries account for seven out of every ten tonnes of CO2 emitted since the start of the industrial era. While China is the biggest emitter in the world today, its emissions are still only one-fifth of US levels per head. India's are a fifteenth. Third, as the report spells out in compelling detail, the heaviest costs will be borne by the world's poor. Among the most frightening consequences are those for rainfall and glaciers. Water shortages could become severe across large swathes of the globe. Poor people are far less able to cope with climatic disasters than rich ones. But this, if we were honest, is why the rich are unlikely to make the huge reductions in emissions this report demands. The powerful will continue to act without much consideration for the poor. This, after all, is a world that spends ten times as much on defence, much of it useless, as on aid to poor countries. How might this change? The answer is that we must appeal at least as much to people's self-interest as to their morality. Yes, we have a moral obligation to consider both the poor and future generations. And yes, the fact that the changes in the composition of the atmosphere are to all intents and purposes irreversible makes early and effective action essential. But acceptance of these points will not be sufficient to obtain meaningful action, instead of pious aspirations and much pretense. A good example of the latter is the proposition that it is enough to lower the carbon intensity of output. Alas, it is not, unless that reduction is very large indeed. Two things are needed. The first is convincing evidence and arguments that the true risks are larger than many now suppose. Conceivable feedback effects might, for example, generate temperature increases of 20 degrees centigrade. That will be the end of the world as we know it. I cannot imagine a rational person who would not seek to eliminate even the possibility of such outcomes. But if we are to do that, we must also act very soon. The second requirement is to demonstrate that it is possible for us to thrive with low carbon emissions. People in the Northern Hemisphere are, for example, not going to choose to be cold now in order to prevent the world from becoming far too hot in future. China and India are not going to forego development either. These are realities that simply cannot be ignored. The UNDP report argues that the low-carbon future it wants could be achieved at a cost of 1.6% of global output between now and 2030. Such round numbers look attractively modest. But the question people will still ask themselves is what all this might mean for their own standards of living. Advocates of change will have to persuade people that living in a low-carbon economy does not mean giving up everything they enjoy. People will not wear her shirts, whatever they may pretend. In short, if they are to tolerate radical change in energy use, people must first be frightened and then they must be offered a good and attractive way out. The truth, moreover, is that this will happen only if the U.S. also takes the lead. No country will deliver radical cuts if the U.S. does not do so too. No leaps forward in science and technology will occur if the U.S. is not prepared to commit its resources to those ends. The U.S. can no longer wait for a lead from others. Either it takes the lead now or the cause, in all probability, will be lost. Our children and grandchildren will then find out whether it was a real wolf.
or not. Thank you for listening. To read Martin Wolf's columns online, please go to www.ft.com forward slash wolf.